tuned in to episode 11 of beyond the pond this is the podcast in which brian and myself utilize the music of fish as a method to introduce a listener to other jam to other non-jam bands that would think that they might like we love fish we are big fish fans especially now as the baker's dozen is going on but the problem with fish fans is that really they listen to nothing but fish they become myopic and then their life just goes down a dark path and we don't want to see that happen <laughs> so this is our 11th episode we are going to do something slightly different here we've been doing something slightly different our last few episodes but keeping with that we are going to cover two jams from the baker's dozen we decided to go and go ahead and cover a couple different gems from the last uh, or the first eight shows of the Baker's Dozen. Uh, we're going to go ahead and talk about the tube from Wednesday, July 26th, and the song I heard, The Ocean Sing, from Sunday, July 30th. Two really fantastic examples of the diversity jamming and the uh, depths that Fish is going with with their imp- improvisation right now. So some of the themes that we're going to explore via these two jams in this episode include Madchester jams. That's Manchester in the summer of 1989-1988 called Madchester, which you will soon learn about. Midtown UFOs. And what the hell is happening at the Baker's Dozen? My God. But on that note, let's get to the fish. The asteroid crashed and nothing burned Made me wonder Do tigers sleep in lily patches? Do rhinos run from thunder? I got a ache in my left ear I felt a thing but I still can hear It made me think I would not be burned But when I gave myself to science I felt that I could All right, so like we mentioned at the top, we're going to cover two different jams uh, in this episode. First up is the Tube from Wednesday, July 26, 2017, followed by the song I Heard the Ocean Sing from Sunday, July 30th, 2017. But before we get into those, we wanted to just kind of talk about why we picked these two jams. Um, You know, I would say, first and foremost, these are both really incredible examples of the diverse jamming that Fish has really been experimenting with throughout the Baker's Dozen. Um, If you think back to the first weekend, three really solid shows. Uh, I think we both agree they're, uh, at the very minimum, uh, B-rated shows, but, you know, B-plus, A-minor shows to kick off the Baker's Dozen after uh, a really great five shows that that came from Chicago and Dayton and Pittsburgh. But... um, I think if there was anything left on the table or anything left to be desired during that weekend, there was a lot of Bliss Peak jamming. And um, we all know what happened uh, following that first weekend. Everyone was really high on where Fish was. And then, what was it, like an hour after the 723 show ended, they announced the jam-filled donuts for 725. Is that correct? Um, I don't know if it was an hour. It was certainly... 
early that morning. Yeah, no, certainly. I agree that um, the first three shows of which I saw the first two were all B plus A minus shows. Very, very good. Very solid 2017 excellence. They would all be near the peak of what transpired in 2016, but they had yet to drop the hammer, so to speak. Right. Like I, I left those shows thinking, okay, they're getting there. They're feeling it out. They're seeing what they can do. Very satisfying jamming. And then Tuesday hit. Tuesday hit, and um, I won't forget it. I was texting with you, Dave, as well as two of my other buddies who were at the show. All of us went in with pretty big expectations. We all know that expectations can be the death knell of fish fans uh, right. a lot of the time. And so when the band opened up with Sample, uh, you you could literally hear um, the band and nothing else on the the stream. It sounded as though they were playing in an empty room. (laughs) And then right after the the second chorus in Sample. uh, Right after the simple smiles and good times seem all wrong. Trey just took the song in a completely new direction and we got our first... 10 minute sample followed by and I can't believe these words are coming out of my mouth still a 29 minute and 59 second version of Lawn Boy yeah that was um, <laughs> I was at that show I actually wrote about it for Fishnet and then um, when they started the sample like letting an air out of the balloon and then when they started the jam it was like everyone saying at once okay i see what's happening here then trey had a huge shooting grin i mean people you know until with long boy i mean people didn't really realize the magnitude of what was going to happen and still fishman started playing the drum beat at that point it all settled in said okay they're trying to go epic they're well aware of it they're calling their shot Jamfield's got nothing to do with Raspberry. It has to do with the fact that they just decided to pick this night to go big. And all the stuff leading up to it, like the 27-minute simple from Chicago, the big Wombat Jam from Dayton, uh, the 17-minute MoMA Jam a few nights prior. You know, this was all, all dry runs for what ended up being one of the more epic nights of Fish 3.0, if not the most epic night. It's certainly... At this point, it's between that and then the Fuck Your Face show, um, 8-31-2012, let's say. Yeah, I say you throw a bit of Magnum Ball in there, and you've got maybe that night three at Randall's. Uh, you've got a pretty mm. good argument for, for uh, high-level, high-quality fish and 3.0. But, um, you know, in regards to this tube um, and, and all of this, we haven't even mentioned the... Um, per, I think perhaps my favorite night or my favorite jam of the 725 show was uh, the, the big cross-eyed and painless. Um, your first, which was really cool to, to me. Yes, yes. Um, I was very, very excited to see that. Yes. But following all that, you know, I, I would say most people would have forgiven Fish if they had come out and played a complete dud on Wednesday. They came out and they had a somewhat standard first set that sounded really really good on re-listen i actually really enjoy that first set but um tube came around uh to close out set one and uh really picked up that experimental uh jamming from the night before and uh 
feels in some ways as though Tube is back as a big jam vehicle. I mean, this was their most experimental version since 2.0. Um, thinking about 2.20, as well as uh, I believe it was 6.24, 2004, I think that was the night. Yeah, easily the best version of Tube of uh, Fish 3.0. I don't no question. I don't think that's up for debate. No. And, um, you know, the jamming we'll talk about where in relates to the songs I pick for this episode going forward. But certainly, that was a great way to end that set. That set had a Pebbles and Marbles in it, which was very good. Um, it had what the very long fuse was quite nice. Even yeah. Farmhouse, the place was pretty good. I mean, it was, um, it was certainly... Whereas the night before, obviously, I mean, the first set had a 30-minute long boy. I mean, you can't expect that level of improvisation every night. But no, I thought that the first set on that Wednesday, July 26th show was good. It was kind of felt like a cuddle. Like you're uh-huh. after whatever's gone on in the sheets being 725, 726s, the cuddle and watching television and eating ice cream in bed afterwards. Kind of, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's also kind of what what are you supposed to do after right. you play a thirteen song show and um, you come out and you sing Fleet Foxes a cappella and play Cars, Trucks, and Buses in my soul. There Say, you go. all right, there you go. And that was great, and that makes perfect sense that Trey would discover the first Fleet Foxes record now because it right. came out in two thousand eight, and Trey and indie rock it takes a few more years than most people. So, you know, with regards to the tube, and we'll talk a bit about the jamming style uh, here here shortly, um, later in the show we're going to talk a little bit about the song I heard the ocean sing uh, that was played on Sunday the 30th, which will be the second jam that we're featuring. But um, in terms of the overall significance of the shows, of this run, what is your kind of quick take on, uh, on the Baker's Dozen? Uh, where we are right now, eight shows in. Um, it's exceeded my expectations. Has it? I think that, yeah, it has. First of all, the establishment of the whole, like, donuts theme. I mean, I think at first, when they announced that they'd be handing out donuts for every show, everyone thought it was cute. And then when they saw it, the first one would be coconut, they kind of didn't realize that the coconut theme would be incorporated into the show. Right. And then once... They realized that coconut donuts meant things like playing Reba and having like coconut themed cover songs. And it was great because every time there was new donut flavor, it would cause more speculation on the internet, more things to talk about with your friends, more songs to guess, and just, you know, kind of like uh, really brought the fish community together. And it was a lot of fun. It kind of reflected some of the more zany aspects of the 90s. And the shows have been jam-packed. They've been loose. They've been very good. I mean, I think almost any one of the shows might have on its own been an argument for, like, a top five show of 2016. And uh, certainly, in terms of ranking all the shows, I think that the first and second would have to be probably night four and night five, both of which... In addition to being the best shows of the Baker's Dozen, could be top 10 shows of 3.0. Yeah, I would say the only other show that has a. Um, that could kind of sneak into that top two would be Sunday Night. Yeah. Um, which I was at. 
and uh, just kind of had all the makings of a classic fish show in terms of big old songs, rarities, storytelling, and then a 40-minute jam segment to start the second set that really, you know, took that experimentation that you saw in 725 and 726 and kind of seemed to um, find the outer edges of it and then keep going. Um, as as we're all as we're talking about this, I do have Twitter going next to me, and um, Scott Marks Biz Archive is uh, freaking out because uh, Steep just crossed 11 minutes. So that kind of speaks mm. to where we are right now in terms of uh, the Baker's Dozen. I, I would agree with you completely. Uh, this has far exceeded all of my expectations. No, I too have received a. a- text messages and somebody at the show saying they have played many of my least favorite fish songs that said this is very very good <laughs> referring to the uh i guess what at this point is probably the 12 minutes deep but um just to pick up on what you were saying yeah the most recent sunday night show if you told me that the show would feature forbin's mockingbird with squirming coil uh lyric teases and a harpua, and 40 minutes of spaceship ambient jamming to kick off the second set, then I would say, wow, that sounds like one of the greatest shows of all time. And it may end up being that, because that, uh, that was a very, very high-quality show. It was, it was. And um, just kind of running through some quickly some of the highlights. You know, We all know them, but um, starting with Weekend 1, uh, as Dave was saying, this really established the donuts theme and the impacts that they would have on the overall shows and the overall run. Uh, Timber modulated into a jam, three songs into the entire run. We got Tweezer, Slave, and Reba off the table immediately. For those of us who thought they were doing no repeats, this was a big blow to our argument and also seemed like a ballsy move by the band. Um, he had great seven below really great second uh everything's right um both of which jammed uh pretty heavily next night you got moma moma dance breath and burning had big jams during this the first set followed by the down with disease jam and reprise in set two really great peaking jam out of down with disease and uh strawberry letter 23 also an acapella strawberry fields opener which Pretty special way to start the show, and uh, Peaches and Regalia on the encore for the first time ever. Um, and then just wrapping up that first weekend, Sunday morning, by Velvet Underground opened the show, 15-minute It's Ice, and a very, very, very mellow but ambient jamming set to Wolfman's Twist and Waves really being the peak of all of that. And then the uh, first week, those Tuesday and Wednesday shows, of course, they had the release of the Jam Filled Donut theme that Monday morning. And then you know that show had your just your typical 10-minute sample in the jar, 30-minute Lawn Boy, the 12-minute My Friend, My Friend. They also played um, Type 1, a very satisfying stash and bathtub gin in that set. Said two, you should not sleep on the Fuego, just 20 minutes and quite good. 33-minute cross-out and painless, and they even did the debut of uh, the song End of Session, which is the last song in Story of the Ghost that I didn't even realize Fish considered to be an actual song, but I guess they had a change of heart. That was <laughs> qu- quite good and quite interesting. 
Now, the next night, Wednesday, July 26th, had the 15-minute two, which we're going to talk about. And set two is a fully flowing machine going from the Carini to the Mystic Completely into a very shaggy but Dance Party USA version in 1999 that had an extremely high-energy jam. Steamed No Quarter into Character Zero, which featured um, a very cute Mike and Trey duel. And, of course, the encore of Neil Young's Powderfinger, which is one of the greatest songs of all time, was played very well and fit perfectly in with the powdered donut theme of that evening. Picking up right there, Dave went off to vacation, and I headed mm. to New York City. Uh, Broadcasting live from Cape Cod. I, uh, I got up there for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, really... You felt that the band was settling into the residency in a sense. Um, They're playing more songs in these in these sets, but still really high quality jams and uh, a few gags. The one thing that really blew me away from the weekend was um, while we didn't have quite the surprises in terms of first set jamming that you had in the first five shows, um, aside from Sand and a brief uh, jam out of Wilson and Runaway Jim on nights um, seven and eight, uh, when they started up the second set with a particular song, the combination of no repeats, whatever history you had with that song from a jamming standpoint, it was as if the crowd just completely locked into it. I, I don't know the last time I've heard a fish crowd as loud as they were when they started Choctaw's Torch on Friday night. It was just as though everyone realized, all right, this is the Choctaw's Torture of the Run. Mm. We know that they've jammed this incredibly well over the last five years. You could argue in a lot of ways it's been their best and most reliable jam vehicle since 2012. And the way that they've been jamming throughout this run, like anything seemed to be on the table at that point. A 45-minute Choctaw seemed to be on the table. It was a very good 25-minute jam uh, with a particularly fantastic hood peak towards the end i was uh situated behind the stage first time i've ever been in that spot for um, a fish show and really enjoyed watching the crowd react to all the jamming in that especially towards the end but uh previous to that you had hilarious chocolate rain opener followed by fishman standing at the microphones to deliver ass handed uh, great free the dogs always love to catch something off of chill and thrilling that was really great a very very good divided sky uh, and then a type 2 uh, sand that modulated and went into a major key and peaked really well and that closed the set um, and then following that Choctaw's Torture Jam in set 2 debut of um, uh, Hot Chocolate's You Sexy Thing and then Mercury only my second only Mercury I've ever seen. Um, I love that song. My favorite 3.0 tune. Probably my favorite fish song since uh, Sense and Subtle Sounds. And that found its way into a really interesting jam that went right back into You Sexy Thing. So really, really just great overall show. Um, I don't know if it would sneak in the top three or top four of the run when all said and done. But if that was the only show that I saw on a summer tour, I'd be very, very pleased. Saturday night was uh, kind of your uh, classic Saturday rocker with a bit of a twist. Uh, I think, again, like Friday, if you caught that show on a random 
Saturday during summer 2016, the internet would be ablaze that fish is back, that everything's okay. We don't have to worry at all about Trey sneaking behind the Marimba Luminous. Um, yeah, that's the thing that Baker's does, and even when it's not at its most robust, it's still very, very good by any other fish standard. Yeah. So it's like pizza. Even when it's bad, it's good. I mean, bad being a relative term, but if you want to. I guess, like you say, even the worst night will stack up extremely favorably against anything from 2016. Yeah, you know, I experienced this once before. Um, I would say that this last weekend that I saw was one of the strongest weekends of fish I've ever seen, uh, along with Dick's 2012 and, and Magnaball. Um, Magnaball was strong all the way through. Dick's, you know, the, the, the Fuck Your Face show was on par with that 725 show that you saw. And um, The only reason I bring it up is when I go back now and I listen to 9-1, that's a very good show. And in a vacuum, mm. that's a really, really good show. In the moment, I walked out slightly disappointed. And I know that... You want that light? The, the light was amazing. I, the, the venue looked as though they, they won the world, that we won the World Series. Um, and, I, and I said it the morning after the chalk dust, that, that chalk dust was as close as I got to re-experiencing that feeling in, in a stadium. Um, with fish fans, uh, you know, from a jamming standpoint of just a huge peak and jam. My point is just sometimes fish plays such a great show that no matter what they play the next night, it's always going to feel a bit underwhelming. And I think right. that you're seeing that with this past Saturday show, even Friday to a certain degree, Wednesday the 26th. Um, there's just so much good jamming happening and so many good song selections and so many crazy debuts and so many rarities and bust outs that they're almost getting lost in the shuffle and, and this is not me complaining I'm keep keep it going fish but it's the really interesting aspect of this I mean Saturday night opened up with a llama and a Wilson that went 10 minutes into a deep jam uh, Yamar that kept flirting with type 2 jamming uh, there was some really incredible energy in the eye and the walrus um, you know, I felt immediately afterwards that was the best version of a Beatles song that had ever been played, and I was just blown away after I watched it. And then following it up in the second set with a really incredible blaze on. I would say it is the blaze on to this point. Um, a great jam out of Meat Stick that perfectly faded into Dirt, a Type 2 hood, and then, you know, just a ho hum Cinnamon Girl encore. Uh, first time since 731.97. I mean, those sorts of things would just send the internet into a, a, a spiral on any given weekend of fish, but right now is somewhat overlooked. And then Sunday, touched on it a bit earlier, I'll just say it again. Um, I would say that's a top five fish show I've ever seen. Um, curtain with opener. Really great, nearly type two runaway gym. Um, some good, really great playing on uh, home. Uh, I was glad to see that for the first time. And then ending the first set with Forbin's Squirming Coil lyrics, Mockingbird, and David Bowie. And then set two coming, uh, starting off with 40 minutes of jamming out of um, Drowned and a song I heard the ocean sing. Always wanted to see a type two version of that song. And to get as whacked out and as spacey of a version as they played was just a dream and then to watch Trey look at Paige and have this shitty grin on his face and put his hands up to his face 
and I just knew right then we're actually going to get a harpoon. Mm-hmm. Crowd lost it. Um, great narration about uh, the origins of the universe. Following that with a really, really funky uh, dance-heavy 2001. And uh, I guess I would probably have to say the best bogey I've ever seen. The place was just on fire at that point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said that before, but it was just like that was placements, everything. Placements, placements. everything. Sets, you know, exactly what you play during a set is everything. And then to encore with uh, the wind cries Mary. Um, I mean, I look back at the the three encores I saw this weekend and. Uh, could never have predicted those. That's not your typical Rocky Top or Character Zero encore. It's great, great stuff. So I think we've um, done this justice. Uh, mm. There's a dozen. What we're going to do is uh, we're going to play a bit of the tube. David's got some great stuff picked out for the tube. And then we're going to come back and chat just briefly about the um, uh, song I Heard the Ocean Sing. And uh, we'll play that. And uh, hope you guys enjoy it. Let's get to it.
segment of the tube jam from july 26 2017 from madison square garden that was the set closer of the fifth night of the baker's dozen now you will note in that jam there was a point where page was playing these um very big bright d major piano chords fishing was doing a bit of a shuffle and the whole thing was very danceable 
very high step in, very bouncy mic bass line. And I'm going to use this as a segue to talk about a genre of music known as Madchester. That's Manchester, England, except mad. Now picture, if you will, it's the summer of 1988 and the summer of 1989. Maybe you're a late teenager, early 20s. You're young and you're free and you're probably dancing at the Hacienda Club on lots and lots of ecstasy and perhaps LSD. Summer of 88 and also summer of 89 was sort of referred to as the second summer of love in Manchester, England. This was a time when many bands, as would known to be called the Manchester scene. These were bands that specialized in psychedelic music with big beats, big piano chords, very funky bass lines that led themselves to much freaky dancing, not unlike what you'd expect to see at a fish show. The style of music has also been referred to as baggy because the denizens often wore uh, very big flared pants because they were comfortable in addition to wearing these flared pants on the fashion sense, but also include um, like fishing hats and you would kind of go to clubs like the Hacienda and the music would be booming. Things would be getting very hot and sticky with many strobe lights on the inside. If things would get too hot, you might take an ice pop and you'd be listening to bands such as the Happy Mondays, the Charlatans, and Spiral Carpets, the Stone Roses. All of these bands specialized in dance beats, specialized in a brand of psychedelia. And I think the idea was you would take the MDMA, which I'm guessing was a lot purer back in 1989 than it is now, and go to these clubs and you would dance. So while the second summer of love was said to have, uh, I guess, peaked in 1989, certainly the baggy style of music sort of permeated uh, permeated Brit rock throughout the early 90s and even kind of cracked the mainstream a little bit in 1991 or 1992 in slightly lamer form. Certainly uh, the song Unbelievable by EMF, that's kind of an example of a baggy gone mainstream. He even had that band in 1992, Stereo MCs, with that uh, make sure y'all connected the writings on the wall. Like that song would even be considered somewhat of, uh, I guess, mainstream baggy on, on MTV. And if you really want a fantastic overview of the Manchester scene that is far more entertaining and far better than anything I could tell you on a podcast, I would highly recommend that you watch the movie 24 Hour Party People which is named after the first Happy Mondays record. It stars Steve Coogan in the guise of Tony Wilson, who is behind the Factory Records label. And it is just a fantastic overview of that era and everything leading up to that era. Endlessly rewatchable. One of my favorite movies of the past 20 years. I've probably seen it at least 15 times. And the first band which I'm going to discuss in relates to this phenomenon is the Happy Mondays. And the song we're going to play from them is called Step On. It's their signature song. It is very bright D major piano chords leading into a slinky bass line and the gruff creative vocals of one Sean William Ryder. Um, so, yeah, the Happy Mondays were... They did 
quite a bit of drugs, lots of ecstasy. As they went on, they unfortunately got into somewhat harder drugs. But what made them brilliant was in addition to um, the very infectious dance beats was the front man, Sean Ryder, who's uh, a bit of a thuggish, gruff Mancunian who came up with very, very witty wordplay. And it all came to a head on their peak album, 1990s Pills and Thrills and Belly Aches, which I would highly recommend to every last person listening to this podcast. That is, it is a glorious psychedelic dance album. Um, this song comes from side B of that album. It is very danceable. It is very catchy. And the piano chords and the beat almost sound like they were taken wholesale from the portion of the tube jam, which I have just played for you right now. And, um, you know, really, I think the best way to experience the Happy Mondays is just buy any one of their earlier records. I think they had four albums. I would highly recommend uh, the Pills and Thrills album. I would recommend Bummed, which I believe came out in 1988. Their swan song, Yes Please, from 1992, wasn't that good because by that point they had all moved on to crack, which is uh, not conducive to making music at all. But everything before then was pretty great. But I would um, recommend this song and this album quite highly. So we're going to play Step On the Happy Mondays. part in the show where Brian talks about a song, but I know the Manchester stuff better than he does, and he knows Ambient way better than I do. So I'm going to take the next song. going to play a song by a band called Primal Scream. The song is called Come Together. This was off of their 1991 album, Screamadelica. I believe it was their third album. 
And although this came a little bit after the height of the Manchester scene, it's still really considered to be one of the touchstones of it. It's much of the production is done by a man, Andrew Weatherall, who was a DJ who um, became very famous around that time. And this album, it has a lot of gospel. It has a lot of piano, a lot of harmony. It's very uplifting. It's the kind of song album when it comes on certain songs like Come Together, Loaded, Moving On Up. You could just imagine people in the club raising their arms to the sky in, in just in jubilation, mostly because of the serious gospel influences on quite a bit of it. Um, there's also some very good ballads. There's fantastic bass lines. And, you know, the whole thing is almost designed as a concept album of sorts like some songs they get reprised um so what's interesting about primal scream is that if you know them you might know them for their song rocks from 1994 which was a stones rip um every one of their records is a bit different than the one that came before they put out a record called vanishing point in the late 90s which was very very dub oriented they put out one in 2000 called exterminator which was lots of electronic noise which featured um kevin shields my bloody valentine was a member of the band at that point so while they are an actual band what they kind of tend to be is a cypher through whatever hot new producer they choose to put on the record at that point so in 1991 this was their big baggy turn and Screamadelica is thought as one of the best albums of that era and one of the best albums of Primal Scream's career. They're uh, still around, frontman Bobby Gillespie still putting on shows, putting out records, varying quality. This was probably as good as it got. So going to play Come Together by Primal Scream.
song was coming together by Primal Scream. And now for the third segment in the baggy portion, going to talk about one of my favorite bands, The Charlatans. And the song we're going to play is probably their biggest hit of the Manchester era called The Only One I Know. Now, The Charlatans, they certainly got their start. Their first album came out in 1990. So while they were initially a fixture of the baggy scene, kind of as they went on, they became more traditional British rock, sort of more Rolling Stones, you could say. Um, Sometimes people lobbied things against them, say they were kind of knockoff artists. In particular, the song which we're going to play here sounds a heck of a lot like Hush by Deep Purple. But um, they're fantastic songwriters. They probably peaked in 1997 with their album Telling Stories, but they've put out, goodness, they have at least 10 or 11 studio albums. They're still around today. They're still putting out very good songs. And, um, you know, with their front man, Tim Burgess is a charismatic guy, and they've always kind of specialized in a very bright, classic version of dance music. So... The Charlton song I'm going to play now is The Only One I Know. And again, it's evocative of the baggy era in terms of the big beats, big organ, and the psychedelic catchiness. And sounds quite a bit like this tube jam. So here it comes.
Thank you so much, Dave, for an introduction to Madchester scene and the uh, jamming similarities between Happy Mondays, Primal Scream, and the Charlatans with that tube jam. I heard it completely. Uh, really, really enjoyed that. So um, at this point in the show, we're going to take a bit of a pause here and talk a bit about new albums. Um, I will be... Full disclosure, completely honest with you all right now, uh, ever since Fish Tour started, I have really fallen out of my new album uh, rotations. Uh, it's probably the only thing I'm excited about the Baker's Dozen ending is a bit of a break from listening to Fish every day and uh, starting to dive back into new music. <laughs> uh, I don't know I, if you're the same I, way, but... Oh, I, I do, 100%. Um, so I'm digging a little bit uh, deep into my yearly rotation here. This is a record that came out in May, but uh, I keep listening to, uh, I keep enjoying, um, and I keep hearing more sounds and great songwriting out of it every time I listen to it. This is Wooden Wands Clipper Ship. This is uh, James Jackson Tulse's first record since 2014. And really, at the end of the day, this just ticks off a lot of boxes for me. It's woozy acoustic guitars that are layered psych folk solos patience is rewarded you get sun kill moon as songwriting about the mundane aspects of life um really for me that's that's what i look for in a lot of songwriting a lot of music right now um the song mexican coke kind of summarizes the record it's a song about bygone pleasure of carrying around cash particularly when it comes to wasting away time in restaurants where Mexicans Coke is served and presumably is only cash is cash only. Um, there's a line in it. Uh, there's no use using all the unused dollars down the line. You can't stockpile time. What has the night to do with sleep when there are promises to keep, which really, really, uh, displays the nuanced beauty of the record. Um, a lot of great figures of speech, a lot of great kind of um, lines that come together over four uh, um, four or five phrases. Um, and uh, it's just a really pretty record that just kind of sits with you for a long time. Um, unlike what he had done in the past, Toth uh, wrote the melodies to these songs prior to writing the lyrics. So throughout the whole record is... A very very heavy soundscape feel to to the songs. Um, the lyrics in that case sometimes fit in non traditionally, which I really enjoy. And it's a record that really uh, rewards multiple listens. Um, uh, Toth gives his backing musicians a ton of freedom throughout the record, so they dabble from measure to measure, and they provide the listener with. These kind of little Easter eggs and just numerous surprises with each repeated listen. It's uh, one of those albums that you, know, you hear a song the first time, you kind of hear the overlying melody, and then you hear it four or five, six more times, and you start to hear a drummer in the background who just kind of takes the rhythm and the beat off into a different direction for you know just a slight second, or a guitar uh, riff that's you know uh, underlying the the overall song that you never caught before or just some kind of offhanded noise. And um, we referenced uh, and discussed William Tyler's Modern Country back in episode five when we talked about the Alpine Tweezer. Uh, fans of that record, I think, would greatly enjoy this. And Glenn Kochi, the drummer for Wilco, appears on both records. And 
something about his very atmospheric drumming that fits perfectly to this sound as well as uh, that of modern country. So uh, Wooden Wands, Clipper Ship, I would definitely uh, re- recommend listening to this record, uh, especially as we start to enter the uh, the hazy uh, finality of summer and move into fall. I think it's going to be one of those records that I'm just going to want to listen to on repeat come late September, early October. What do you got, Dave? So a new album that I have been spending some time with is the new one by Nicole Atkins, Goodnight Rhonda Lee. Now, Nicole Atkins has sort of become somewhat more famous than what the jam band said from her frequent sit-ins with Joe Russo's Almost Dead playing the Donna role because she, give her credit, she knows her dead and sings her songs extremely well. But she's also an excellent solo artist in her own right. And her latest album, and the first that she's made since she moved to Nashville, relocated there from Asbury Park, New Jersey, it really showcases the fact that at heart, she's a soul singer. Um, The album that came out before the few years ago, Slow Phaser, was kind of... It was enjoyable, but it was sort of lukewarm indie rock, some questionable flirtations with disco, some sort of almost Brit rock textures. New one is Pure Stacks. I know that she recorded it with the drummer Josh Block and guitarist Austin Jenkins, both of whom left uh, the Austin band White Denim to sort of go into more soul-based production work. Um, I know that they were the rhythm section for the singer Leon Bridges, and they've kind of branched out since then. But, you know, the album, in addition to her pipes, it's a very, very warm production. It's got good horn charts. It's got um, some good organ work. You know, it just sounds very warm and lived in, and I think going like the full soul route is probably one of the better ideas that she's had in some time. Um I know that she usually she has some really good co-writers on her songs. I know that uh, that Chris Isaac I think contributes to at least at least two songs in the record, including the first single, "A Little Crazy," which is the opening track. And it's a very impressive album so far, and I'm definitely looking to see forward to see her when she comes back to New York City in September. I think she's playing the Mercury Lounge. That should be. A great show. And now, from there, I just want to transition into the next jam, which we are going to be talking about, which is the a song I heard the ocean sing from the most recent Sunday night show, which would have been July 30th, 2017. sing from uh sunday july 30th um this really couldn't have been more different from the tube jam that we discussed earlier and uh kind of one of the reasons that we decided to go with two jams um well in part the the quantity of jamming at the baker's dozen makes it 
really, really difficult to pick and choose, but also just the diversity that they're jamming with right now is just, um, I don't know if I'd say it's unprecedented, but it's definitely unprecedented in the last 15 years, at least since 2.0, but this reminds me a little bit more of what was happening towards the latter end of 1.0. But um, from my money, uh, this is the, the perfect jam. Uh, I don't know if there's anything more that I want from Fish than this kind of deep space, off-kilter, uh, slightly electronic, slightly uh, um, acid jazz, uh, feeling like UFOs are landing in the middle of Midtown Manhattan. I mean, this was just a absolutely epic jam to witness. I've listened back to it now a couple of times, and it holds up extremely well on tape. Um, what are your thoughts on this one, Dave? Yeah, I watched this on a Sony flat-screen TV in the basement of this, this rental house that my family has in Cape Cod for a week, sitting on a couch next to... A wooden table made to look like a whale because it is Cape Cod after all. <laughs> and I just said, wow, I need to listen to this set again as soon as possible, perhaps under the influence of something fun. And it's just, it's sort of, it took the uh, NASA twist jam, the classic April 2nd, 1998 aliens landing on Space Jam to a logical just extremes especially the middle of the song i heard the ocean sing jam it's almost broken down to the point where it sounds like it's from summer 1995 they just totally throw out the song structure and get scronky with it there's a lot of space and it's really it's completely different than the tube jam it's completely different than the major key blitz get enough of in the first week in a baker's dozen and you know it just shows the degree of the looseness and the staggering high quality of these shows that they're willing to go on a limb and do this and it also you know it gives them a very high opinion of their audience that the audience is willing to come with yeah yeah it uh shows kind of the patience that they've gotten into this deep into the run and um, you're absolutely right. It's a, kind of a tip of the cap to their fan base on a Sunday night. Um, one thing I noticed on re-listen, um, it sounds as though they're yelling Jimmy a couple of times throughout the jam. Uh, Trey was definitely doing some yeah, that's weird true. vocal stuff. And, um, yeah, I just kind of love that little throw in there uh, to the gag and to the, to the donuts and um, I mean, overall, I just I loved this jam and the way it, it faded into uh, our poo. One thing I loved about this jam was that you, three or four different times you thought it was coming to an end, and every time I thought it was coming to an end, I was like, "Well, that's as far out as I've heard a song the the ocean sing go in uh, what six years now." Um, I'm pretty satisfied, and then they would come back in with something, and that's kind of uh, where where fish is at right now. It's it's a good place to be. Would agree 100%. And on that note, let's listen to some of it.
sing on july 30th 2017 so as dave mentioned uh uh, his forte is uh madchester uh from the late 80s early 90s i'm a huge fan of ambient experimental noise-based music so we felt it was great to each of us pick a jam that we saw pick a style of music that we are both pretty passionate about for this 
Um, so I'm going to talk about um, three artists that I think everyone here who is a Fish fan that likes what they played, especially during that Drowned and a song I heard the ocean sing, as well as set two of 723, and uh, I would say portions of the Chucked, or the, excuse me, the uh, Cross-Eyed and Painless from uh, mm. 725. Uh, about 19 minutes in, 19, 20 minutes in, when they went into a very deep, ambient, beatless sort of section. And, um, you know, really just some of these peak uh, ambient jammings from this tour. If you enjoyed that, I think that you really like the three artists we're going to talk about. And the first one we're going to go with is a guy by the name of Tim Hecker, who I've been trying to figure out an excuse to talk about on this podcast since we started. And I'm really glad that um, coming out of that a song I heard the ocean sing it was really the first artist I thought of um, and we're going to play a song off of his 2013 record Virgins the song is called Live Room uh, so Tim Hecker is an LA artist uh, by way of Montreal um, he can be kind of personified as uh, electronic noise, ambient and just kind of overall experimental artist current sounds that he focuses on um, they really highlight his use of pipe organs played in a live setting that are then broke it down disjointed and rebuilt through editing and through um, further work from a production standpoint um, it's really really interesting sound that has a very authentic uh, uh, but atmospheric and kind of postmodern sound to it um, Hecker came from uh, two art teachers, his parents. After college, before going into playing music, he worked as a Canadian political analyst for the Canadian government. Um, really? Yeah. Hey, really I, didn't, of, I had no idea. I was, that was a new little nugget of information I got for myself uh, in preparing for this. Um, kind of makes sense when I take into account his music and uh, kind of fits the theme of the current fish show that's happening right now. Hmm. Um this record, Virgins, was a seventh LP. It was uh, just brilliant. This was a top ten record for me in 2013. This was recorded in Seattle, Reykjavik, Iceland, and Troy, New York, of all places. Uh, much of it, though, was recorded in a church in Iceland where it was recorded live, um, allowing the space to shape the music rather than the typical reverse pattern for electronic music. Um, this is a very sublime headphones record. Uh, the song we're going to play here, Live Room, is the complete peak of the uh, album. And um, aside from Hatred of Music and the Piano Drop Trilogy, which was on um, 2011's Rave Death, 1972, another fantastic record of his, um, really the peak of Hecker's sound, I would say, overall. Um, we're going to talk about another artist here after we play Live Room uh, named uh, Owen Tricks Point Never, uh, who uh, is the stage name of Daniel uh, Lopatin, uh, who Hecker has worked with in the past on a few improvisational projects, specifically over the last few years. Um, so he's definitely worked his way around the noise, the ambient, and uh, electronic scene in. Uh, kind of a larger indie rock and uh, noise-based world. Um, and uh, from a really general sense, you know, his music, I would say, pr uh, proves the, wor the worth of watching 
art fall apart and fade away in front of your eyes. A lot of his songs are kind of meant to be destructed and meant to fall apart, not really build anything. They're meant to show you a sound, show you an idea, and then kind of waste that all away. And think Godspeed, you Black Emperor. Uh, Fenizes, who we covered in episode 6, when we discussed, I believe, no, it was episode 7, when we discussed the Jones Beach Bowie. Um, Kid A, Era Radiohead, as well as William Bizinski, who we did feature in episode 6, when we talked about the Fukuoka twist. So, we're going to focus on, uh, or play a sample of the song Live Room here, off of Virgins. This is Tim Hecker.
right, I hope that you enjoyed Live Room there from Tim Hecker's Virgins. We're going to transition here and talk about uh, the Daniel Lopatin fronted project, uh, Owen Tricks Point Never. And this is off of his 2015 release, Garden of Delete, the song Child of Rage. Um, Owen Tricks Point Never. Uh, or OPN for short, is an electronic and experimental-based artist in Brooklyn who records on the Warp label. Uh, the name, Own Tricks Point Never, is a audible play on the Boston radio station Magic 106.7. Um, he's been making music as OPN since 2007 when he moved from Massachusetts down to New York. And uh, interestingly, he is the son of Russian Jewish immigrants who immigrated during the Soviet Union, both of whom were musicians. Um, he started experimenting with music because of his dad's jazz fusion record collection and the Roland Juno 60 synth that his dad had at home, which he still records with and he still uses on stage. Um, he moved to Brooklyn for grad school. He was studying archival science and from there got involved in the Brooklyn noise scene that was developing in the early to mid-2000s and um, has been steadily putting out records on a two- to three-year basis since about 2009. Um, in 2014, he toured in support of Nine Inch Nails and Soundgarden, a huge opportunity for him to be the opening act for those to artists and uh, the album that we're discussing here the song we're discussing off of the album 2015 uh, Garden of Delete was inspired following this tour uh, where in which Trent, Trent Reznor told him to just play as hard as he wanted during the opening set he wanted to get the audience as amplified and as slightly terrified as possible um, and so he really went kind of uh, as hard as he possibly could throughout uh, his opening slots and then would spend the rest of the night listening to Soundgarden and Nine Inch Nails, which inspired him to revisit the grunge scene that he was raised on, which led him to think a lot about adolescence and puberty, which he remembered as a pretty traumatic experience, which was then reflected in his music. Um, this record he wrote and recorded, well, he wrote it uh, in a um, small windowless basement apartment in Brooklyn that he rented immediately following the tour and then uh, started recording it um, shortly thereafter. Uh, the record was preceded by a really intense promo campaign, which in turn helped to become his most anticipated record yet. Um, there was a fake website at one point that was put up, uh, a lot of uh, crazy articles that were put up. Um, I swear it was not as annoying as the Everything Now uh, record release. But, Just uh, gonna say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, proof that you can take a kind of atypical and uh, intense approach to promoting your record, and if it's really good music, people will appreciate it. So unlike Tim Hecker, we talked about um, uh, just a little bit ago, uh, this record and most of what OPN does is is not the most inviting sound. Um, I will fully admit that it uh, um, challenges the listener to pay attention and follow Lo, uh, Lopatin's constant shifts. You can almost feel 
Like there's just like an ADD tendency to the music and almost reminds me in some cases of Summer 1995 Fish where they'd just be jamming this very intense style and then they'd come across a melody and it was almost as though they were afraid of getting uh, into something that was really pleasant and really peaceful and so they'd immediately move into something a little bit more aggressive and intense and it feels like that sometimes here. Um, That said, uh, and for me, you know, I don't listen to this on a regular basis, I'll listen to it when I'm in the mood, and it you know, definitely will hit me very hard when I do hear it. If you can bear the constant movement, it's a very deeply engaging record full of uh, lots of emotional payoffs, uh, especially come out of subject matter and um, really just the technical skill of uh, Daniel Lopatin uh, with, with his OPN recording. So we're going to listen to Child of Rage off of Own Tricks Point Never's Garden of Delete. Child of Rage there and hope that it kind of brought back memories of the uh, uh, song I Heard the Ocean Sing from July 30th. The last song, the last band that we're going to discuss is um, yet again another one of those bands I've been looking for an excuse to fit into the podcast. Fits here perfectly. This is uh, Boards of Canada with the song Reach for the Dead off of 2013's Tomorrow Harvest. Uh, Tomorrow's Harvest, their um, first record in, I believe, seven years at that point. Um, A really big deal, really big record of 2013, uh, and one of my favorite records that year. So, Boards of Canada are a Scottish electronic duo. Brothers Michael 
Sanderson and Marcus Eon Sanderson um, have been recording since the mid-1980s, I want to say. And they record in this very warm, very analog sound that is a mimicking of a lot of media and a lot of production work in the 1970s. Um, they are constantly exploring themes of childhood and of nostalgia. And um, this is a very, very reclusive band. They rarely give interviews. They rarely even play live. Their last known live show was 2001's All Tomorrow's Parties. So um, this is a group that if you hear from them, it does not necessarily mean that you are going to see them. Um, in anticipation of Tomorrow's Harvest coming out, a record that had been kind of uh, rumored to, to be in production and be in existence from around 2010, 2011. But again, no real press, nothing really behind it. Um, they sent an unlabeled vinyl to the other music record store in New York City for Record Store Day in 2013. Rest in peace. <laughs> uh, it contained a brief snippet of music that was uh, confirmed to be by them uh, by their label Warp. Um, over the next few months, snippets of announcements came on platforms like BBC, various websites, uh, even Adult Swim. Um, about the album, about um, codes uh, pertaining to the record. And then finally, fans were invited to visit a website where there was a six-digit code that fans needed to enter. Those who entered it correctly were allowed in where the album cover first emerged. And the album cover is actually really interesting. It was taken, it's a picture of the San Francisco city skyline with a few of the buildings uh, reversed and put in different places. It's taken from an Air Force base, and there's just this kind of thick cloud that lingers over the skyline, and it looks as though kind of looking at a post-apocalyptic city. Um, it, it toys with, you know, again, the, the skyline of San Francisco makes it look almost like a city that you'd find in Southeast Asia. Um... It's uh, just really, really fitting for the, the sound of the overall record and for the sound of um, where Boards of Canada is here now, you know, 30 years into their career. Um, the album overall was influenced very heavily by film soundtracks of the 1970s and um, was, like I said earlier, one of my favorite records of 2013. I think it was a top 10 or top 15 record for me of the year. And this song, Reach for the Dead, really introduced the album in a really beautiful way. And uh, we are going to go ahead and listen to that right now.
folks, just want to recap the songs that you heard on this episode. Now, uh, in terms of discussing the Tube Jam from July 26, 2017, we played Happy Mondays, Step On, Primal Scream, Come Together, and The Charlatans, The Only One I Know. Those are our examples of jamming based upon the Manchester scene of uh, 1989 in Manchester, England. And then for the version of the song I heard the ocean sing from this past Sunday, July 30th, that was our Midtown UFOs section. We listened to Tim Hecker, Live Room, Oniantrix Point Never, Child of Rage, and Boards of Canada, Reach for the Dead. Just a quick reminder of where you guys can find us online. We are on Twitter at underscore beyond the pond. We are on Medium. We publish a brief essay ahead of the release of our episodes at medium.com slash beyond the pond. And uh, we have been updating our Spotify playlist with each of the songs that we feature. Uh, if there's a fish jam that is on Spotify, we put that on there as well. Um, but uh, definitely the songs that we've been selecting and that playlist has gotten pretty diverse and pretty robust. Definitely recommend listening to that and throwing that on shuffle. Um, so yeah, those are the big places that you guys can find us and interact with us and add us and tell us uh, everything that we do incorrectly and say incorrectly about fish and uh, how uh, the connections that we make just simply cannot be right. No, never right. Never right. <laughs> Just to um, go over our publishing structure, what we do is we publish every other Tuesday. So it's twice a month, once every two weeks. This episode is going to run just after The Baker's Dozen has concluded on, I believe, August 8th. It is every other Tuesday because we say that Tuesdays suck because they have no feel. But... I think I'm going to have to call it into question after having witnessed what took place on uh, Tuesday, July 25th. <laughs> Absolutely. And on that note, I'm David Goldstein. I'm Brian Brinkman. And please come back again in two weeks and join us as together we go beyond the pond. Throughout the night, when there's no direct light, and a thin veil of clouds Keeps the stars out of sight I can smell the colors Outside on my lawn The moist green organic That my feet tread upon And the black oleander Surrounded by blue